Well, we got the passage up here behind me. <clears throat> I love the Gospel of Mark because he doesn't waste any time in getting to the good news that he wants to share. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, there's a one-sentence introduction. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in verse 1. Then in the following 12 verses, he describes how John the Baptist prepares the way and quickly summarizes Jesus' baptism and temptation. The gospels of Matthew and Luke, to compare, spend two chapters each introducing Jesus, and they don't even get to John's ministry until chapter 3. It's almost as if Mark is so excited to share about Jesus' life ministry, death, and resurrection that he doesn't want to wait, seems like he doesn't want to waste our time, and so he gets right down to the good news and its implications. Mark 1, 14 to 20 describes the opening period of Jesus' ministry, and in these verses that we're going to look at today, Jesus is proclaiming what I'm calling a revolutionary message. He gives a revolutionary call, and the disciples respond with a revolutionary obedience. And today we're focusing on a revolutionary lifestyle um, that, that Jesus is, is uh, calling us to. When we think of revolutions, though, we generally think of violent changes to power structures uh, of countries that take place over relatively short periods of time. And even though the motivating ideologies and methods and durations of the various revolutions have been quite different, we know that the resulting consequences of revolutions in human history include significant cultural, economic, and sociopolitical changes, sometimes positive or negative, of course. When you look at the history of revolutions, though, most of them have had small beginnings. When you think about the history of the United States, our country, the Massachusetts Minutemen and their Continental Congress reps, they probably didn't know that their rebellion against unfair British taxation would result in a full-blown American revolution, and then develop into one of the most economically and militarily powerful countries in human history. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolutions, the Chinese Revolutions, and many others all started out small, but they all, result, they all resulted in violent struggles with significant changes to cultures, economies, sociopolitical institutions of those countries. And of course, as we know, in many ways, They've also helped shape the world that we live in today, again, positively or negatively. Sometimes we also use the word revolution to describe dramatic changes to our thinking. We might have read a book or had an experience that revolutionized our way of thinking. We might have seen an infomercial that describes the next gadget or tool that would revolutionize the way that we do things. In fact, on Friday, as I was finishing up the message, I, message I'm sharing today, I received two emails in my spam folder. One was from crocus.betsy at poisontorelapse.bid, entitled, This is a revolutionary, revolutionizing weight loss medicine. And another from fat-burner-keto at wdkqby.michellestillpoint.win, entitled, um, Lose weight with this revolutionary formula. Of course, today isn't a political message where I'm seeking to foment revolution in the U.S. or at Parkway. Um, and I'm not trying to persuade you to buy a new product or into something revolutionary new or a revolutionary new way of thinking. What I am sharing today is about a revolutionary message from God's Word. 
It's a revolutionary call that Jesus gave to his followers and a revolutionary obedience to that call. It's about a re-revolution of sorts, but it's not the type of revolution we think of when we hear the word, and it's definitely not new. Over 2,000 years ago, Israel was expecting a revolutionary Messiah to come and forgive their sins and to subdue their enemies and to establish God's kingdom on earth. I think they too assumed it would probably be a violent change to the power structures of their day, but it wasn't. What happened was unexpected to them, even though the whole Old Testament pointed to a Messiah like Jesus who would come. The Messiah's arrival also had a small beginning, like most revolutions, but this small beginning was different, and the consequences were not just major or significant, but eternal. The type of lifestyle that Jesus is preaching about and calling people into this, in this passage today that we're going to look at would have been revolutionary to the hearers because they were expecting a king to come with his armies to take the throne in a worldly sense. However, the revolutionary lifestyle that Jesus is preaching and calling people to in this passage, it has changed and it has the power to change the course of individual lives and human history forever. What Jesus is preaching and calling us to as his disciples should also revolutionize the way that we think and speak and act in our world today as Christians. So today, when you hear the word revolutionary, let's think of it in these terms. We're just going to go through these three, these three points today. A revolutionary message, a revolutionary call, and a revolutionary obedience. So let's start with the revolutionary message. And starting in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. On the previous verses in chapter one, we saw John the Baptist down by the river Jordan announcing the kingdom in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. In verse 14, we find out that John was arrested and put in prison. This is the moment now that Jesus chooses to act and to go public with his own ministry. And it says, he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What exactly does Mark mean by the gospel of God? Euangelion in Greek, which is translated as good news or gospel, it combines the word angelos, which is the word for someone announcing news, and the prefix you, which means joyful. The gospel means news that brings joy. It's good news. Jesus is proclaiming news from God that brings joy. And in his first gospel preaching that follows this, he emphasizes the kingdom of God and repentance and belief in this good news. When he says, the the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now the phrase kingdom of God is found in the New Testament over a hundred times and is the main image Jesus uses to describe his mission. The Old Testament does not use the phrase kingdom of God, but the theme of the kingship or kingly rule of God runs throughout, and it's what Israel finds their identity in. Psalm 103, 19, for example, says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and the king and his kingdom rules over all. First Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the is the heavens. Sorry, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And later in Ezekiel, 
chapter 10, we see God's glory departing from the temple as Israel heads into exile. God's kingdom, kingship, is withdrawing from Israel. And from that time until the Messiah arrives, Israel was under judgment, longing for God to return and forgive their sins, to subdue the enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. The establishment of, the king, of God's kingship in Israel is a near synonym for salvation. It is the good news that Israel was longing to hear. However, Jesus proclaims God's kingdom is at, as at hand. It has arrived or it has come near. In Luke, Jesus also says that the kingdom of God is in your midst or it's within your grasp. God's kingdom has approached, but not in the way that Israel expected. But the kingdom is mysteriously and even quietly present in Jesus' ministry. And that's in comparison with the revolutionary uprising or the arrival of the heavenly armies. The emphasis of Mark 1.15 is that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus' person. His nearness, his presence is confronting people with the kingdom of God. Being being confronted with the nearness of the kingdom of God and the presence of Jesus demands an immediate response. Jesus then says, repent and believe in the gospel in this good news. As we saw earlier, the gospel is good news, and it's news that brings joy. When we look at every other religion in the world, or every other philosophy or belief system, it proclaims a message of advice or suggestions or commands on how to earn your way to God or eternal life or enlightenment or happiness, whatever that may be. But the essence of the gospel that Jesus is talking about here is news. Not only is it news, but it's good news that the King and Lord over everyone and everything came into this world full of love, full of grace, mercy, salvation, and new life, and he draws us to himself. It's the greatest news in human history. This is a revolutionary message that no other religion or philosophy teaches, has taught, or will teach. And as I said before, this message has, had, has changed and it has had the power to change the course of individual lives and in human history forever. We cannot earn salvation through good works, through good character or good values. Jesus has earned our salvation for us. And we are called to simply repent and believe in this good news. Famous, the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is good news. Jesus said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And in Acts 4.12, it says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is good news that brings joy, that we don't have to earn our salvation. Throughout the book of Acts, the constant refrain of the apostles is also repentance and belief. In the Bible, repentance means much more than simply giving up your sins and becoming a Christian. It implies this, but it means also to turn away from something and to turn back towards a true allegiance and faithfulness to God, our creator. The people Jesus was proclaiming the gospel to here in this passage had put their trust in all sorts of other things, like their ancestors, their property, and their legal system, and and even the temple. 
They were waiting for a revolutionary Messiah to bring them prosperity and power again. But Jesus' message was for them to turn away from these passing things and to turn towards him and to trust and to believe in this news that brings joy. But that was not easy to give up these things back then, and it's not easy now. We too, day in and day out, put our trust and we show our loyalty to so many passing things like money or assets or education or status, success or beauty, sociopolitical systems, family, sports, entertainment, and on and on. It's not as though we're actively worshiping these things and bowing down to them. We're not sacrificing animals and burning incense and praying to these things. But we have slowly given these things priority, and we're worshiping them inside of us, inside of our hearts. We're worshiping these things. And Jesus is calling them, and he's calling us to remove these obstacles, these idols from our lives that are hindering us from receiving and believing this joyful news about himself and about his kingdom. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. I also want to point out that I think it's really important here that Jesus, the first thing that Jesus does when he begins his ministry is not to heal people, not to do miracles. Okay? These are the things that show who he is, but immediately he points to the gospel and to the proclamation of the gospel. And not only is it the first thing that Jesus proclaims in the gospel of Mark, it's also the last thing. In his beginning of his commissioning statement to his followers in in chapter 16 of Mark, verse 15, he says, firstly, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Jesus places priority in the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel in his first and last words in the gospel of Mark. Firstly, he's proclaiming the good news and then as, as he is here. And then lastly, he's sending his followers out to go and do the same. This should communicate something to us concerning what our priorities in our lives are. Are we living lives of repentance and faith in the gospel? Are we reveling in the gospel, this joyful news of salvation? Are we reveling in the new life that Christ has given us and the eternal hope that we have in Christ? As Dan shared last week, does the gospel permeate all that we are, like that goat's milk in his cereal? Do we desire to proclaim this good news to those who have never heard? This leads us to our next point. The revolutionary good news, revolutionary message that Jesus is proclaiming here is followed by a revolutionary call. Verse 16 says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, Followed him. Uh, Peter and Andrew, I'm sorry. Jesus, sorry, yeah, Peter and Andrew were fishermen. And Jesus, Jesus moves along and he's coming to him and he first commands the people to repent and believe in the gospel and now he commands them to follow him. Jesus' authority is on display here. All of Jesus, as Jesus' followers, we are not to follow anyone or anything else. We've repented and we've turned away from our idols and we've turned in faith to Jesus and hopefully are daily doing this. And we're now called to follow him under his kingly rule. Jesus is the king in the kingdom of God. 
and we are to worship him as the king and follow him and him alone. Our loyalty is to Jesus. Anything else, idol worship. We know that Peter and John, or Peter and Andrew, had already started to follow Jesus because in, the, in John uh, chapter 1, uh, it tells us that. But Jesus is calling them here to a constant discipleship when he says to follow me. So as these guys are fishermen, it's only natural that Jesus would use fishing imagery. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. However, this is more than just Jesus trying to contextualize with the locals by simply using a play on words. Right? He's fishermen, I'll make you fishers of men. You see what I did there? All right, let's do this. No, it's much more than just a play on words. He is doing that, but it's much more. Jesus is saying here that he's going to equip them. He's going to send them out. Jesus is going to train them to proclaim the gospel and make disciples and then send them out to repeat the process. Jesus starts the process here, and the disciples who became apostles continued it to the next generation. And it has continued for multiple generations over the last 2,000 years up to this point. This is truly a revolutionary call to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Anyone want to try to say that 10 times fast? Make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. You get lost probably there, but the task of, and he's calling us to that today as well. The task of seeing the nations reached is still unfinished. According to the Joshua Project, the most recognized organization researching unreached people groups, as of 2017, as of last year, there are an estimated 6,733 of the world's 16,584 people groups still unreached. That's 40.6% of the world's people groups are still unreached. As the body of Christ, we do need to be involved in missions. And by missions, I mean crossing cultures to make disciples in places where Christ has not been named. By learning and welcome and praying and mobilizing and sending and going. But we also need to be seriously involved in evangelism and discipleship in our daily lives here. The Great Commission is for every disciple of Jesus. If you see yourself as a follower and disciple of Jesus, then the Great Commission is your responsibility as well. Imagine with me what Fairfield would look like if each capable disciple of Jesus in this church, starting here, made one reproducing disciple in their lifetime. Just one. Let's say there's 350 people here between the services each morning. If each person shared the gospel and made one reproducing disciple in their lifetime, there'd be 350 new believers and disciples. Now, what if those 350 disciples shared the gospel and made one reproducing disciple? There would be 700 new disciples. What if each of us had a vision to make more reproducing disciples in our lifetime than just one? What if we had a a vision to see each of the disciples make more reproducing disciples themselves in their lifetime? Do you see where I'm going here? I'm not talking about church growth or making our congregation bigger. I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about a revolutionary way of thinking about evangelism and discipleship that started right here with Jesus. Talking about obeying the call of Jesus and the Great Commission by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples in a reproducing way or a replicating way 
for the sake of God's glory and for seeing the lost reach not numbers. In general, in, in the years that we've been training and doing evangelism, discipleship type trainings, and we found that many of us just don't share the gospel one-on-one with people because we may not know why it's important. We may struggle with knowing who to share with. And we may also struggle with how to engage people with the gospel. And I'm truly, it, it, people really do struggle with this. They don't know how to share their own testimony or share the good news. Um, and we, we, we've tried to, to meet that need in a very practical way. Maybe some of us simply think that it's the work of seminary-trained professionals. And we're happy simply inviting people to church or church-related events and letting the pastor and the main speaker share the gospel and make disciples for us instead. But this is not evangelism and discipleship. Now, as you shared earlier, I heard the gospel here at Parkway because I was invited to a church-related event. Okay? So please don't hear me communicating not to invite people to church and other church-related events. Please keep inviting them to church. Please keep inviting them to events where they can hear the good news as well. I gave my life to the Lord in what's now the nursery at this church after high life in 1998, 20 years ago. And I thank God that my skateboarding friend invited me to high life where the gospel is being proclaimed week in and week out. However, the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples is not the job only of the pastor. It's not the job only of the missionary or ministry, ministry professionals, or the paid church staff. It's every disciple's responsibility. And each believer should be equipped and empowered to share the gospel and make disciples. When we train new and existing believers in churches in East Asia, and other missionaries as well, we focus very practically on the why, the who, and the how of evangelism and discipleship. We've already focused on the why a little. So right now I just want to focus a little on the who and the how that we train new or existing believers in. Uh, Because sometimes I think we overcomplicate evangelism. We think it's too difficult or complicated, so we just don't do it as well. In the New Testament, we've got this word oikos, and it refers to our household. We can think of it as our relational network. We look at stories uh, about the tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus, or the woman at the well, or the demoniac in Mark or Cornelius, or Lydia, or the Philippian jailer in Acts. We see these new followers of Jesus reaching out to their relational networks. Several times, entire households would receive the good news. In the cases of the tax collectors, Matthew and Zacchaeus, Jesus went into their house to meet their oikos as well. In the cases of the woman at the well and the demoniac, they went to their nearby villages and nearby villages, and they told people about Jesus and his message. This is where we need to start with more network, relational network types of evangelism and not event evangelism or cold evangelism where we're going and knocking on doors and things that we all fear, right? But just for a moment, I just want you to think about your oikos. I want you to think about your oikos and I'll break it down into five different, five different categories in your life that, that could be part of your relational network. And I know this is very simple and practical, but a lot of us don't take the time to do this. So the first area is your familial network, people in your family. All right, the second area would be your geographical network, people in your neighborhood. 
All right, the third area could be your vocational network or your, your school network if you're a student, people in, your work, uh, people in your workplace or at school. The fourth area would be your recreational network, the people that you hang out with and spend time with. And then finally, the fifth one would be your commercial network, the people that you see at shops, people that you see when you interact, you see the regular people that you, you interact with. I just want you to take two steps today. The first step would, at some point today, take these five areas and try to write down two names of people you know need to hear the good news. Just write down two names of people that you know need to hear the good news. And after you've done that, you can do five more things. But it's just a really simple thing. It's not, it's not anything huge. We pray for them. Pray for opportunities to engage them. Don't just say, oh, I got this person's name. They really need to hear the good news. Yeah, I don't know when that's going to happen. But pray for opportunities to engage them. Ask the Lord to give you those opportunities. You'll be surprised by what he does through that. Invite them to do things with you together. Look for opportunities to serve them. Right? Look for opportunities to bless other people. Give resources to those people. Maybe it's Maybe a Bible or maybe a sermon or a book and offer to discuss it with them and see if they want to interact in that way. And if you get the opportunity through your relationship with them and your relational network, you can share the gospel with them and you can look for ways to humbly share your faith with other people. Oftentimes we're so on the attack nowadays and we want to prove our position right. I don't know too many people in our 13-year career of missions that have become Christians because we argued them into the kingdom of God. So humbly talk about your faith and look for ways to actually share the faith with them in a non-in-your-face kind of way that's aggressive and just mean. (laughs) So this is just one practical way to start, to look at your oikos, your relational network, and pray for them, invite them, serve them, give them resources, and eventually, if you have the opportunity, share with them. <clears throat> so, are we following Jesus and fishing for people in our daily lives? And are we teaching others to do the same? Jesus proclaimed a revolutionary message of good news, joyful news. And he gave a revolutionary call to go and make disciples in a, in a rep- reproducing way. Let's now see how the first disciples responded. In verse 18, it says, And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James and John, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. <clears throat> Peter and Andrew, and later James and John, immediately left their fishing nets and followed him. I often wonder how many generations of the Zebedee family had been fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. In that country and culture, as in many countries and cultures to this day and where we've lived the last 13 years, a small family business can be handed on not only through generations but through centuries. It's very possible that the Zebedee family was, Zebedee family business was more than four generations Centuries or centuries. Jesus comes along and he says, follow me, and they do it immediately. Think about the life these guys had, the generations of family work. We do know that these guys did fish again, 
and that they related to their families and they took care of their families, as you see here. But for them to leave their vocation and their family immediately like this is an incredible action because simply because their identity is in being Zebedee, Zebedee family fishermen. Very similar with the people group that we've been focused on reaching for the last 10 years. They're all farmers. Their ancestors <clears throat> were farmers, and they worshipped spirits that lived in trees and oddly shaped stones. And I've been in villages where the village headman pointed to a tree and said his family has worshipped the spirit in this tree for more than 800 years. That man's family had cultivated their farmland for centuries. His father was a farmer, and his father's father was a farmer before him, and on and on. It's his family's identity, and it's his identity. I wonder what they would say if they became Christians and they, they were asked to follow Jesus and believe, leave behind all that they knew. In our modern-day individualistic culture in the U.S., we don't necessarily have a problem leaving our parents behind. But what if Jesus asked you to leave your vocation or your career behind? Would you do it? In saying, follow me, Jesus is saying that he wants priority in your life, even over your family and your career, over everything. Everything else should come second. And as we said before, it's an idol if it doesn't. This may sound extreme to you, especially if this is your first time to church or you're new here, but what does Jesus say elsewhere in the Gospels about the cost? of following him. If anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We know that Jesus doesn't ask us truly to hate our family when we look at this carefully. And Jesus is not calling us to hate actively. He's calling us to hate comparatively. He says, I want you to follow me so fully so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. If you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if my career thrives, or if my health is good, if my family is together, then the thing that's on the other side of that if is your real master, your real goal. But as we can see here in Jesus' authority and in his call, he will not be a means to an end. He will not be used. If he calls you to follow him, he must be the goal. It's a quote from Timothy Keller. Let's think about the uncertain future of these guys as well. Being local fishermen, these guys probably didn't leave their hometowns too much. However, we know that Peter eventually ended up in Rome. We know that John became the bishop of Ephesus. And we know that Andrew went as far as the border of Russia. We also know from historical records that some of the apostles were martyred for their belief in the gospel and perseverance to proclaim it. And many, many more have been persecuted and martyred for their faith through the centuries until today. And many more will be in the future. The cost of discipleship is great and it should not be taken lightly. And yet, the disciples followed immediately. This is a revolutionary obedience rarely seen in our world today. What would our world look like if Jesus' disciples responded to Jesus' revolutionary message of repentance and belief in the gospel and then immediately obeyed his revolutionary call to follow him and make fishers of men? What would our daily lives look like if we simply obeyed Jesus' commands in the Bible? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep 
my commandments. Now, it would be really easy and dangerous, I might add, to look at the disciples and think that these guys were special or holy men. To think that there was something intrinsic within them that Jesus found desirable, like their character or their good values and their good upbringing that brought them to make the right decision to immediately follow Jesus. And then, think to yourself, I just need to work harder. I need to be more like them to, give, to live a life pleasing to God. You very easily become legalistic. It would also be really, really easy and dangerous again to feel guilty that you don't live a life saturated in the gospel and proclamation of it, and then think, just need to work harder to live a life like these guys, and then I can earn God's pleasure. But the truth is, when you look at these guys, they were uneducated fishermen. And with the benefit of hindsight that we have in opening up the Bible, we also know the embarrassing mistakes that the disciples, like Peter, made. He denied Jesus. Jesus called him Satan, called him to get behind him. (laughs) This passage is a beautiful picture of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that Jesus does not pick these people to be his first disciples because of anything intrinsic within them. Out of all the people in this area of the world, Jesus chose uneducated fishermen to be his first disciples. Isn't that amazing to you? Isn't it the same throughout the entire story of the Bible, though? Look at Abraham. Look at his dysfunctional family in Genesis. Look at Moses, the murderer. He was a fearful and angry man. Look at David, a tiny shepherd's boy, adulterer, and murderer as well. Look at the whole history of Israel, God's chosen people. They turned their backs on God over and over again in spite of all that he did for them. No, these stories and this passage here are a picture of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The King of kings and Lord of lords has chosen sinful, ordinary people throughout the Bible to be a part of his revolutionary mission in the world. And here, he chose sinful, uneducated fishermen to be his first disciples and then entrusted them to kickstart the expansion of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. He's chosen you and me to do the same. What I love most about this passage is the fact that it's not about the disciples. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ. This passage, this passage is a Christ-centered passage. Jesus is the center of it all. He is the one who comes seeking the first disciples with the good news. In his authority, he is commanding them to follow him and then calling them to proclaim the good news about him and make disciples. This is grace. Because of this grace, we desire to obey God. When I quoted Jesus above, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, it doesn't mean that we obey Jesus in order to earn God's love or pleasure, but that we obey because we love him in response to his grace and the love that he's shown us. This passage gives me So much hope that we truly can live a revolutionary life that Jesus is calling us to as his disciples to live. I'm a weak, sinful person, but I've been transformed by the gospel through simple repentance and belief and have a new life in Christ and have escaped the wrath of God and have a hope of eternal life. And desire to proclaim this good news to others 
because of what he's done. I heard a preacher say that we are not called to be containers of grace. Some of you might have heard that before. I think this is really a problem in Western Christianity. We love God. We love the gospel. We love communion and union with him and worshiping God on Sundays and enjoying him. And I praise God for that. I praise God for his word and our heart language and the fact that we can know him and the power of his resurrection. But we're keeping it all in the containers of ourselves. We aren't simply containers of grace for people just to look at and see our lives and then let them ask about the gospel only. Yes, please keep doing that. But the Bible says very clearly that we need to proclaim the gospel. These were Jesus' first and last words in Mark. Paul also says in Romans, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they'd never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? This is not just hearing preaching and sermons on Sundays and only inviting your friends to church. We have seen, we have heard, and we've experienced the gospel of grace. And we are commanded and called to share that with our lives, of course, but with our words as well. But we do it out of love and gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, not out of a legalistic, manner or obligation or guilt in order to earn our way to God or to earn God's pleasure. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are his disciple, and you can live a revolutionary lifestyle in Christ and for Christ yourself. Again, remember, as we said in the beginning, that most revolutions have small beginnings. I'm not preaching here that you need to be a revolutionary, extroverted, go-getter personality type. I am not. You also don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or a ministry professional to follow Jesus, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples. The five main great commissioning passages of Jesus are for every single believer. And some of us might become pastors and missionaries or ministry professionals or paid church staff, and I pray that more do, but it's not the prerequisite to living a revolutionary in Christ and for Christ. You can be a stay-at-home mom, a construction worker, a businessman or woman, a barista, a realtor, an uneducated farmer, and even homeless, and live a revolutionary in Christ and for Christ. Revolutionary in the way that I'm preaching today doesn't imply that you have to be a revolutionary figure like Billy Graham. You don't have to be a Billy Graham in order to have a revolutionary lifestyle. The message, the call, and the obedience is revolutionary because Christ makes it revolutionary. It's his gospel, it's his call, and we respond to it in obedience because the King of kings and Lord of lords is calling and commanding. Christ is what makes your lifestyle revolutionary, not you or something intrinsic within you. Billy Graham was one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen. And I praise God for him. But if the qualification for proclaiming the gospels and making disciples in a a replicating way are to be Billy Graham and do what he did, then we're in trouble as the church. In this passage we're looking at today, and in Jesus' commissioning statements in the New Testament, as well as, as, as the rest of the New Testament, Jesus started with uneducated fishermen, and he trained them to follow him, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples that replicate themselves to the ends of the earth. 
we can start to, in our lives, with our oikos, with our relational networks, whatever that may be, and proclaim the gospel, make disciples that replicate themselves. And we can also move towards being involved in missions to the ends of the earth. Lastly, I want to point out too, because it's really dangerous to think this is a legalistic thing and that we have to do this. God's grace, not only is this a passage of, and a beautiful picture of God's grace, but Jesus also leads the way by example in his life, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself for our sake and for the sake of the glory of God. This should encourage us and motivate us and empower us to sacrifice our lives, our time, and energy for others' sake and the sake of the glory of God. Not only does Jesus lead by example, but Jesus also promises his presence and his power will be with us as we seek to further his kingdom on earth. This is a divine human partnership that we're living in. At the end of the Great Commission in Matthew, he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And further in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he's ascending into heaven, he's, before he ascends, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He promises his presence and through his Holy Spirit, his counselor, his guider, leads us into completing this task that he's given us. I will say it again, not only did Jesus lead by example and show us the way, he also promises his presence and power through the Holy Spirit to complete the task that he's given to us as his disciples. This is a beautiful thing, and I pray that, God, that God's grace and enabling will move us to live a revolutionary lifestyle in Christ and for his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the gospel, for the good news. Lord, you've saved us. You're transforming us by the gospel now. We have a hope of eternal life. You've done so much for us, Lord. In that grace and in the example of you leading, God, we want to go out and we want to do the same. We want to proclaim that good news to the ends of the earth. But God, we have to start somewhere, and I pray that this morning that you'd help us all look to our lives right now and look to people that need to hear the good news and share it with them, not just with our lives, but with our words too. Lord, give us wisdom, give us guidance, give us help. We need you. We thank you that you're, for the promise of your presence through the Holy Spirit that Finish the task that you've given us as your disciples. We pray that we do it for your glory and for the sake of the law.